So this week and next week, we'll be looking at um, the Passover as we're going through the, um, the Feast of Israel. Um, I'm this, so John is taking it next week, and I'm sure they're taking a different, another direction. But what I want to do this morning, um, first off, um, I'm going to show you some, some more information where it all fits into the year of the festivals. And, and I'm going to show you some slides, but don't worry, I'm not going to talk through them. Okay, because there's lots of information. I just want to show you the context, if that makes sense, of where Passover fits in. And, and then we'll talk about Passover, talk about that passage that we just looked at and some other ones. And then briefly kind of look how Israel did the Passover through the centuries and its certain points of their history. But what I want to end up is, is with Jesus, okay? Especially as we're going, in, we're in, um, going into... When Palm Sunday this week, going into Easter next week, we're going to end up focusing on Jesus and in particular John's gospel, John's version of Passover, which I think is the most interesting. Um, and so that's, that's kind of the general plan this morning um, and Passover, or the Feast of Unleavened Bread. bread as you, that's one thing you definitely got out of that reading, isn't it? Because <laughs> it's repeated so many times. No yeast, no yeast, no yeast, no yeast, no yeast. Or I've never, I've, so that's, you know, if something is repeated, it's important. Okay, so um, these next two slides, like I said, I'm not going to talk through all of them. I just want to show you, this is actually the um, Israelite religious and agricultural calendar, because they're both linked together. So you see all of their 12 months and all of the festivals and all of the kind of agricultural stuff that went on during that month. You can see, for example, the seventh month, Tishri, probably pronounced completely wrong, um, was probably the busiest month (laughs) when it comes to festivals because there's three major festivals in the seventh month. There's the Feast of Trumpets, Yom Kippur, or Day of Atonement, and then Tabernacles at the end. So the seventh month was the most important and busiest one. Um, but the first month is where Passover is. Okay? Passover start is in, so Passover is the first festival of the month, of the year for them. Their year is slightly different. As you can see, it starts in March or April. And it's a, a lunar calendar. So it's a little bit different to ours. That's why it's... Sometimes it's in our March, sometimes it's in our April, and because Easter is now connected to Passover, sometimes Easter is in our March, sometimes Easter is in our April, and it moves around. It's all because of this lunar agricultural calendar, actually, that they based it on. And you can see that it's a seven-day festival. Um, It's a seven-day festival starting on the 14th day of the first month to the 21st day. Um, and Passover itself, the Passover night, is day one of that festival. But it's a whole seven-day festival over Passover is the first one. Um, yep. Okay. You also would have heard in that reading that at the beginning, God says to Moses, okay, this is where your calendar starts. Okay, so this is year zero, or or probably more accurately, year one, um, of Israel. Israel began their calendar in this chapter. And they began their calendar right after the plague of darkness that went on Egypt. 
So as soon as that was done, God said, okay, now is day one. Um, So if you like, the official history of Israel starts then. That's when they count all their years from. Which means the Passover is not just the first thing in their year. It's the first thing they ever do officially. It's officially the first religious thing that Israel does in their history, in their calendar. Obviously, they've done a lot before that. But now, officially, this is where their calendar begins. So Passover is the first official um, festival. And as you can see from here, it happens on the 14th day. And the next day, they're out. (laughs) The next day, they're out of Egypt. And then a month or so, a few months later, they end up in Sinai, where you get the rest of the Exodus story happening. So Passover is right at the beginning of their story, their official religious story, if you like. So, the Passover night itself that we just read about, um, there was a lamb, unless, as Barbara said, it could either be a sheep or a goat, um, which you don't hear much about, actually, only actually when you actually read the text, that you could have been a, a, a kid, essentially. It could be a lamb or a kid um, that, was, that was killed. Um, per family, and they all kill the, anim- the animals at the same time. Um, this is going to come into importance later. Everybody, all the, all the animals, all the lambs are killed at, at twilight throughout all of Is- um, Egypt, Israelites in Egypt. And then they take the blood from the lamb and spread it on the, the doorpost and the lintel. Some people interpret the way it's done so that there's blood on the side, there's blood on the head, but the blood on the head drips down and falls on the threshold. Um, so some people interpret the way that they, the entire door frame, if you like, is covered in blood in the four points. And other people may interpret that to mean like a little early version of the cross because you have the, the cross actually made in blood. Doesn't actually say that in the text, <laughs> but it's a nice idea, and some people think that's what's happening here, or they see it in there. And then the lamb is, and it, you have this strange meal that happens. You know, normally when we go, when we have an, an important meal, we dress up. And they had to dress up for the important meal, but very differently. They had to put their coat on. <laughs> You know, they had to put their coat on, their walking boots, their hats, you know, as we were, their walking sticks. They're eating this important meal as if they're about to go out. And this whole meal has this kind of theme of rushing, of not, you don't spend, even though they're spending time to prepare it, it looks like no time has been spent to prepare it, if that makes sense. Because normally, when you when you kill an animal and when you cook an animal, you prepare it. You, you, you take all the insides out. You quarter it. You cook it in certain ways. But they say, no, you kill, kill the lamb, take the blood, and then cook the lamb <laughs> over the fire. Whole. There's no preparation done to the lamb. And then you wear your coats when you're doing it. And you eat bread that has no yeast in it. So bread with no yeast, is rushed bread again. It's this idea, when you cook bread properly, you put yeast in and you wait. Um, 
I don't seem to have the time to do it much in my life anymore. But I used to enjoy baking bread um, years ago. I used to really enjoy it. And it's a long process if you do it by hand, as probably many of you know. Um, there's a lot of mixing and kneading and then leaving for ages and go off and do something else and then come back, do some more stuff, and then leaving for ages. And there's a lot of preparation and waiting, but not if you make bread with no yeast. None of that waiting is necessary. You mix, knead, cook. You know, it's a very more... Um, I have in my time um, also baked tortillas, um, it's a, it's, in one way, it's a more tricky process, <laughs> getting the things right. But in one way, it's a more simple process because there's no yeast involved. You, you mix it, get the shape, cook it. You know, it's very quick, the process. And that's kind of the image here. So the lamb being roasted whole with no preparation, wearing your coats, wearing, having your walking stick, and having bread with no yeast... All of them are symbols you have to be ready to go. This is it. It's time to go. Hi, Vicky. <laughs> it's like, it's, I have, you, have to go, you, you have to be ready to leave. And that's what God is trying to get over to the Israelites. Your time in Egypt is over. This is it. This final plague is the end, and you're going to be out. And you're going to be out quickly. So get ready to go. Um, and then Yahweh passes through Egypt, strikes down the firstborn of, of the Egyptians, and it says bringing judgment upon the Egyptian gods. And we'll talk about that again in a minute. But there's lots of things going on here. Remember the last time I think I preached here was about Moses, wasn't it? And the um, killing of the babies, basically, or how Moses survived that. I think that's got a lot to do with this. You know, that Egypt, especially Pharaoh, the living god of Egypt, had threatened to kill the firstborn of Israel, both literally in the sense of the, of the, of the sons, but also God consistently refers to Israel as my firstborn. My, if all the peoples of the world are God's children, Israel's number one son, if you like. They're my firstborn. You have oppressed and killed my firstborn son. You have literally killed the firstborn son of my people. And now you have said, I'm going to kill your firstborn son. Because the final plague is actually a response. Pharaoh decides what the final plague was going to be. He says, I'm going to kill the firstborn of Israel. And Moses says, well, that's what it's going to be then. And so they're all kind of tied together, this firstborn imagery of the judgment. You know, basically, Egypts decide their own judgment by their actions over the years and then the decision of, the, of Pharaoh at that time. And also, God says it's a judgment on the gods of Egypt. So it's not just a judgment on Pharaoh or the Egyptians. It's actually a judgment on the gods. So... The original Passover night is also spiritual warfare. And another slide of which I'm not going to go through, but just to show you <laughs> in context, what, if you look at all of the ten plagues against Egypt, 
all of them are connected in some way to one or two, sometimes three, god or goddess of Egypt. Um, so, for example, um, the fifth plague, the cows. The cows and the bulls, the livestock, are killed. Well, the mother goddess of Egypt had the head of a cow. Um, also, part of their religion is every year they had these, this thing called the Apis bull, which was this special bull that was chosen and looked after all its life. And when it died, it was, it was mummified in the same way that the pharaoh was. And it was kept in a special temple. You can actually, it's there, they're there still in Egypt. There's like dozens and dozens of these huge sarcophaguses with bulls inside. So cows and bulls were very honored, venerated in Egypt. And actually Isis, the queen of the gods, had cow horns on her headdress. You know, so that fifth plague is an attack on all these different gods. And the tenth plague is like the ultimate attack. Um, it's bringing death. Now, the, the, the Egyptians had a god of the dead, the Osiris, who was usually seen to be the king of the gods. The most important god for the Egyptians was Osiris, the king of the dead. And now God is overruling him, if you like, by bringing death. Also, the firstborn of Pharaoh dies. And Pharaoh, and Pharaoh himself is affected. Now, this is an attack on Horus, which is the son of Osiris and his heir. And Pharaoh was meant to be the living embodiment of Horus. That's why he was a god king, because he was like Horus made flesh. And so his son is killed. The authority of living God has been threatened, and the next living God has been killed. So it's actually God saying, not only am I more powerful than you right now, I'm more powerful than you in the future. I affect your future as well. So all of these plagues, and then Passover as the ultimate one, is spiritual warfare. It's basically God fighting the gods of Egypt and defeating the gods of Egypt for his people. And that's part of what Passover remembers. You know, usually when we think of Passover, it's God rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. And that's, but that's only one half. The other half of Passover is that God defeated the gods of Egypt. This was warfare. He fought on the behalf of his children and he won. Um, some more details then. So the blood is a sign. The blood that they put on the door is a sign that Yahweh will pass over. And that's where the word comes from, pass over. Again, there's a little bit debate whether it's God passing over the house, i.e., I'm not going to kill you, <laughs> or it's God passing over the doorway and actually going into the house saying, I will protect you. So it could be a both metaphors is idea, but the idea is that he passes over and they don't die. And then this is set up as a memory forever. That all throughout their generations, Israel have to commemorate this day and remember what God did for them. It's a seventh-day festival with the Passover night at the front 
and then you have two like special Sabbaths, the first day and the seventh day, where you have a holy assembly, they all get together to worship God, and nobody works on the, in this festival. And as the end of the reading said, the point is, you do this so that your children ask why. Why do, are we doing this? Why are we eating this bread? Why can't we have proper bread? <laughs> why? You, you can imagine that's what kids are going to say. Why, I don't want to eat this. this is, these herbs are bitter. Why can't we cook this lamb properly? Why are we eating this bread, and why do I have to eat these horrible greens? <laughs> you know? And so why are we doing this? And then it's a point of teaching that do this because Yahweh passed over us when he struck down the Egyptian firstborn, saved us, and defeated the gods of Egypt. Um, I have already wouldn't say much on this one. That's where Passover is in the Torah. Okay. Um, the one we read out, and then it's mentioned a few more times, repeated in Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And what it did, it created this festival um, that happened, that began on the 14th day of Aviv or Nisan, um, this seven-day festival. And it wasn't just a family thing, it was also a temple thing. So every day of this festival, there will be certain sacrifices happening all the time uh, alongside the normal sacrifices. And then the, the whole, so you have families celebrating together, and then the first and the seventh day, the whole people get together and celebrate together. And that's what it was supposed to be over the generations. That's how they commemorated this. And we do see a few times in the rest of the Bible, rest of the Old Testament, you see when Passover happens. And what's interesting, you also see when it doesn't. It happens in a very key time in Joshua 5, right after they cross the Jordan. There are two things the Israelites do as soon as they enter the Promised Land. Everyone who hasn't been circumcised yet gets circumcised, and they celebrate Passover. And I think that's very important because God is reminding them of two things. Circumcision, remember as you enter the promised land, your covenant with me. The promises we have made together. Secondly, Passover, remember as you are about to go to war, I defeated Egypt for you. The greatest nation on earth with the greatest gods on earth, they are in ruins because of me for you. So these Canaanites, they're nothing. Don't worry about it. Go take the land. So it's remember my promises. Remember what I've already done for you. Then the Old Testament goes quiet. And Passover is not mentioned again until, chronologically speaking, Chronicles. Chapter 30. King Hezekiah which is centuries after Joshua. He reinstitutes the Passover, which tells you they hadn't practiced it for a long time. For years and years, they stopped remembering what God had done for them. They stopped remembering the salvation from Egypt and the defeat of the gods. Um, they do it, 
There's a hint in the text that it's the biggest, most proper one since David, but they get some details wrong. They're not sure what they're doing. And you find out why in the next one. <laughs> 2 Kings 23 and 2 Chronicles 35. This is a few generations later, King Josiah. Part of his reign, they rediscovered the law. And they, so they knew the Torah again. So when he started the Passover, they did it properly. And actually says they did it properly since the first time since the book of Judges. So in between Judges and Chronicles and Kings, they aren't following these laws. They're not doing it properly. Probably what they mean is when it hasn't been obeyed properly since the tabernacle was destroyed. In the, if you remember the beginning of Samuel, um, the tabernacle at Shiloh is destroyed, and then later David puts it back together again. But it hasn't been done properly since then. And then in Ezra, you get another significant time. As soon as the temple is rebuilt, after the, coming back from exile, Passover. It's like the first thing is mentioned. Temple has been built. What's the first thing we're going to do in it? Passover. Remember how God has saved us in the past and defeated all the gods of Egypt for us. So you have this very significant time entering the promising land, and then years of basically forgetting about it, doing it properly again, exile, as soon as you get back in, it's done again. Okay, we have to do this. This is very important. The Gospels. Um, looking at Matthew, Mark, and Luke first. Looking at Luke first. Because Luke is unique, it tells a little, a little tiny Passover story in that a 12-year-old Jesus goes to Jerusalem to celebrate Passover with his parents and gets lost. And I'm not going to say much about it, but there's that very important thing. It's at Passover that you get the quote from Jesus, I must be about my father's business. At Passover you get that quote. Then... The rest of the, the other three, the three synoptic gospels, they all talk about the Passover, the final Passover of Jesus, where all the passion narratives and the cross take place. And that's what the Last Supper is about. In these three gospels, the disciples are in the upper room celebrating Passover together. That first day, eating the lamb and the bitter herbs and the unleavened bread. And because day starts at six o'clock in the evening <laughs> in their calendar, that means that Jesus' trials and his crucifixion all take place on the first day of Pass the first the Passover day, the first day of the unleavened bread. So all of that story takes place on this first day, on Passover. And the focus of these gospels is the fact that of the Passover meal. That's what's focused on, and which then becomes communion. Jesus offers his body. You know, they're eating the bread and the lamb associated with Passover, but now Jesus says, this is my body. So he becomes the new meal that saves his people. In the original Passover, it was this lamb meal that saved them, but now Jesus becomes the meal that saves them. And then that meal is now celebrated forever in communion. That's how Matthew, Mark, 
and Luke look at it. As usual, John is different. Um, you get three Passovers in the Gospel of John. And he plays around with them a little. Um, it, it seems that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are basically telling the story of what happened with Jesus. John comes, well, I don't need to tell that story anymore because it's already been told three times. I'll tell a different story. I'll tell the story as if everybody knows who Jesus is right from the beginning. So in John's gospel, you don't discover who Jesus is. You know it in the first couple of verses. You know, and it's let's retell the story as if we know who he is. So it's a very different focus. And so you get a number of Passovers, not one at the end. Jesus comes to Jerusalem for Passover, which is where he meets with Nicodemus. So that conversation takes place at Passover. So when famously Jesus says to Nicodemus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that is about Passover. That is said at Passover. Giving his son as an act of love to his people happened at Passover. The second Passover in John is in chapter 6. And it's the feeding of the 5,000. That happens for John at Passover. And also, it's when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And gives this big teaching about the bread from heaven that has come down to give you eternal life. So what Matthew and Mark and Luke focus on, the meal, John talks about in chapter 6, and, the feed, and actually gives you a miracle about it as well. The feed, he connects those together. And then you get the third Passover in John, which is basically half of the book. Whereas in the other Gospels, it's a couple of chapters at the end. But John, it, start, it starts, in, starts in chapter 13 and goes right to the end. And John does his trick again of playing with the information to give you a new theological message. So John changes the day of the Last Supper. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it's in Passover the first day. John retells the story and puts it back a day. And so in John's gospel, the Last Supper is on the preparation day for Passover, not Passover itself, which means Jesus is going to trial, Jesus' crucifixion all take place on the day before Passover whilst everything is getting prepared. Why, you might ask? <laughs> it's because that's when the lambs are killed. John changes the story so that Jesus on the cross is happening exactly the same time that the lambs are being killed in the temple. So if you put them together, what John is saying about the Passover is that Jesus is a gift given by God as an act of love. He is the bread of heaven that gives life, and he is actually the sacrificial lamb whose blood saves. And that's John's focus. Not Jesus the meal, if you like, but Jesus the lamb that killed was killed to make the meal. 
He is the lamb that was slain. And John's the only one that talks about Jesus in this way. We're so used to talking about Jesus as the lamb of God. It's John that we get that from. Both of his books, both of his big books. He is the lamb that was slain. And then in Revelation, John continues the story. Um, Jesus is obviously one of the main, the main character of Revelation, but he's usually called the lamb throughout the book. And it's the lamb that is slain that is enthroned in heaven. It's the lamb that has authority. It's the lamb that has victory. So for John, Passover is the image of sacrifice, of saving blood, of an act of God's love, as well as the life-giving meal. And so what I want to do, just to end, is actually kind of wrap that up in worship. Because we look at Revelation, because Revelation is a book of worship. And show how John in Revelation talks about Passover when he's actually talking about Jesus. I'll just read you a few things and then talk about it. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and with golden bowls full of, bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take up the scroll and to open the seal. So up until then, it's still basically about the story of Revelation, what's happening, the seals. But then notice the Passover language. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. I'll just skip a line and come back to the one. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. That's Passover. The lamb was slain and the people were saved and then God took that people to the desert, to Sinai, and made them a kingdom of priests. That's Israel. But in between you have this line. And you were slain by your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So John takes the Passover imagery that was about Israel and makes it about all people. Of how the lamb, the blood of the slain lambs, saved that small people group. But the blood of the lamb saved every single one. And he goes on. And then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So then you have the worship of the lamb. You know, it's like they were meant to remember the lambs that saved them. 
And now the call is to remember and to worship the lamb that saved them. They get this, and you'll get this phrase throughout Revelation, the one who sits on the throne and the lamb. That worship is going up to God the Father and God the Son at the same time because of what the Lamb has done. And there's more. After this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Crying out with a loud voice. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Palm branches, that's connected to this and today as well. But then this idea that Israel thanked God for salvation through the Lamb. And now this picture that John shares of all peoples thanking God for salvation through the Lamb. And you have the victory and authority of the Lamb also. It says they will make war on the Lamb, and the Lamb will conquer them. For he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him are called and chosen and faithful. Hallelujah. For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And finally, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never shut by day, and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations, but nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So I love how John takes this old story about one people, and how God brought Egypt to its knees for his children, this one family. But then John expands it through Jesus to say, This is what the lamb has done for all people. That the blood of those lambs saved a few people. But the blood of the lamb saves everybody forever. And the worship that comes out of him is based on that. And just to end, I think the reason why John is saying this, he's the only one that was there. Apart from people usually forget about the women were there. But the only, the only apostle that saw the lamb being slain was John. And he also saw that lamb enthroned in heaven. So he writes seeing both of them at the same time. That this lamb that was slain on that cross, this is why for John the cross is victory. Because the cross is the throne. And the throne is the cross because he sees the lamb that was slain for all peoples, for all time. Amen.